Welcome to another episode of Records Revisited, a podcast dedicated to the magic of music. I'm your host, your DJ, your MC. I am Ben Montgomery. Joining me is the man who's got a smile that seems to me, it reminds me of childhood memories. Here's the sweet child of mine. Here's Wayne Fugate. Hi, bonjour, people. So you're going with the the, the français today? Huh? <laughs> it's all I can. It's all I used. I already used Hindi already. I didn't. <laughs> Namaste. Oh, that was last week. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what what's the rebuttal for bonjour. Is it just uh, bonjour, is it bonjour as well? Sacre bleu! Slap me in the face with a glove. <laughs> all right. As you know, the premise of our podcast fairly simple. We talk about music. However, as we do at the beginning of each of our podcasts, I have to ask the all-important question, what t-shirt are you wearing? Well, this time I had to go out in the attic. I had to dig it out of a box, but I have my 1992 Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion tour t-shirt from the concert in the kingdom. Um, Like me, it's faded and it's misshapen. It's a little wider and shorter than i remember it but uh it's on looks good there's no way that that t-shirt looks good (laughs) well i'm the only one here judging it so i I, one vote yes and were you talking about the t-shirt being misshapen or you that's misshapen chicken and the egg my friend chicken and the egg all right so tell us what we're going to talk about on this episode Uh, We are going to rank the songs on the 1987 major label debut of Guns N' Roses. It's Appetite for Destruction. Has it really been 30 years since it got released? 30 years. Gosh, time has flown. Wow. All right. So what makes this album so important to you? Oh, I think a lot like License Deal, it it changed things. I mean, I think, I don't know, and I, I... ask myself questions about that time. Um, I was, I think I'd like to look at myself as well-rounded while I was still listening to the Smiths and the Cure and the Cult. Somehow I started listening to Rat and the Scorpions and Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. This album was that, but it was good. I mean, this was, this was, this was raw. These were lyrics with meaning i mean these guys did not i mean while they may put hairspray in their hair uh, uh, at least axel maybe but these guys were not happy they were not they were troubled and they and it and the lyrics um are real and dirty and gritty Um, they don't sound happy they don't they're angry and i was angry and i just I, once I heard this, and I didn't hear it right away, just like the rest of the world, I didn't know it was out there. And a friend of mine, a, a really good friend of mine, um, I actually kind of made fun of them a little bit just from the visuals, you know. They're strung out. They're they're dirty and grungy. And uh, I listened to it, and I, I, I instantly became a fan. I had to hear everything they did. I had to go see them in concert. I, I was overtaken. It quickly became my favorite band. My introduction to the band was actually seeing them open for the cult. Now, I I did miss the first 
couple songs. We we uh, we showed up late, but this would have been September '87, and they they opened for the Cult, which is kind of kind of odd because when they came to Orlando a few years ago, do you know who their opening band was? Who G and R? Yeah, it was the Cult. So total total role reversal. And they couldn't have been more different than the cult. Like I was there to listen to, you know, stuff off of electric and they were just like this really to, to your point. I felt like they were just this dirty rock band, but they had a little bit of that Motley Crue type of attitude, I guess. So whatever whatever the the kids were listening to in 87 as far as the 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 rock stage i mean i i had kind of removed myself from the whole rock and roll type of of mentality i was definitely more into you know more into the the club scene and then essentially almost a year later is really when they broke any idea what took took them so long for the momentum to finally shift in their favor. I, I think it was MTV. I, I know there was, uh, they weren't playing the video. Um, I had read that some right wing head of a giant cable company didn't, you know, want that kind of stuff on his cable, you know, uh, outlets. And uh, the A&R guy just begged David Geffen to call in a favor. They played it one time at 4 a.m. Eastern and the switchboards blew up. They put it in the regular rotation, and it once it got on MTV, that, the rest is history. Yeah, let's let's talk about that whole the A and R guy kind of interjecting. So, with the MTV crowd, was it was this the whole what, what's her name Tipper Tipper Gore and her group? Do you think that she had a little something to do with you know kind of putting a label on GNR that this is a, a really raucous rock group. I mean, if you look on Spotify, I think what, like five of the songs are considered explicit because of, you know, the use of uh, F words and drug references and sex. Pretty much every song on this is about sex, isn't it? Oh, some of it's about just being angry. and Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's not. It, it it was it was much more authentic, much more, uh, and definitely darker themes than you were hearing from Poison and Firehouse or whoever was whoever was on the right. What, what was that daily uh, countdown that they had? Oh my gosh! Um, but every day they would play back the most requested videos, and they were almost exclusively hair metal stuff. I can see why you like this album. So I revisited this album again. It'd probably been a couple of years since you and I had assigned our, ourselves, uh, you know, some some top ten lists regarding GNR. And I can see why you like this because we were talking recently about the Stones, not on the not on any of the episodes of the podcast. This was outside of the podcast, but we were talking about how some of those late 60s and early 70s stone albums were you know really important to you and one of the articles from rolling stone magazine that i read talked about how rose he watched the stones documentary gimme shelter about a hundred times mick and keith 
most definitely were influences. Even if it's not so much the sound itself of the Rolling Stones, I think the swagger and maybe, you know, even with Axel kind of adopting some of those moves like Jagger that he's he's got, definitely making them his own. But there is definitely there's definitely some some Jagger swagger to to uh, to Axel. Am I am I interpreting that too much? No, I think I think not only is there a, a heavy relationship between a, a love hate relationship between the guitar player and the singer, just like the Stones. I, there's a lot of parallels, but yes, their stuff, that stuff that the Stones were writing in that time that we were talking about between the, the mid '60s to the early '70s, was you know was a lot dirtier. I mean, they were exploring um, you know just darker themes. I mean, it could yeah, I'm sure they were from some of the things that they were going through personally. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think there's a ton of connections like that. Like I say, this iconic lead singer who's a rock star. I mean, Mick Jagger is the epitome of rock. He's the greatest rock star of all time, regardless of whether he could sing or whether he wrote Satisfaction. He's a rock star. When he's on stage, he owns it. and The whole world can't help but look. And Axl yeah. Rose definitely had that. His was Shorter lived much more, uh, but it was that intense. I mean, at the time when Axl Rose was on stage singing, everybody was watching, and it didn't matter if you liked what they were singing or not. You could not help but look, and that 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 slumped over, kind of drugged out uh, lead guitar player, kind of over there, just just you know, everybody's following him. The rest of the band's following him. Uh, that relationship between you know, as far as singer songwriter and and you know. It was the same kind of relationship. I will I will say, though, even though I wasn't a huge GNR fan, I did adopt one thing from Axel. I would wear the bandana with the backwards with baseball the, uh, cap with, with the backwards baseball cap. So I did I did do that for a while. All right. So let's let's talk about some of the, the background info on this. Um, let's talk about the name first. So, of course, we know Axel Rose. That is part of the Guns N' Roses fame. Their first recordings were going to be planned for March of 85. There were um, songs, a cover of Heartbreak Hotel, Don't Cry, which of course would uh, would make an appearance on one. Of, it, which Use Your Illusions is that on? Is that one? Actually, Don't Cry uh, has an alternate take that's on the second one, so... Uh, okay. The original Don't Cry is on Use Your Illusion 1, and the alternate take is on Use Your Illusion there, 2. There you go. I knew you would know that info. <laughs> uh, two other two other songs, Think About You and Anything Goes, were also supposed to be part of that EP. Plans for that release fell through. The original guitarist, Tracy Guns, left the band, which is where the guns from the Guns N' Roses comes from. He was then replaced by Slash, and that rounds up the classic lineup of Axl Rose, Duff McKagan, Slash, Steve Adler on drums, and then Izzy Stradlin. After heavy touring in L.A., the group then signed with Geffen. Uh, that would have been in 86. And Axl then stated that a lot of the songs that were on Appetite for Destruction were were uh, written while they were performing on the L.A. club circuit. number of those songs would be featured on later Guns N' Roses albums that didn't make the final cut for Appetite uh, for Destruction, um, Back Off Bitch, 
Mama Kin, You Could Be Mine, November Rain, and Don't Cry that we already talked about. Um, it said the, the reason for not putting November Rain on Appetite for Destruction was because they had already agreed to put Sweet Child of Mine on it. Therefore, they thought that they already had a ballad, which, I mean, do you call Sweet Child of Mine a ballad? It, I think it falls into the power ballad, but I also, uh, your first release, of, you don't want an 11 minute song on there. It's actually almost nine minutes. I would agree with you. The The final version of November Rain, if it would have been on Appetite, what would it have sounded like? I, yeah, I don't think it would have been the same song. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it was the appropriate setting, I guess would be a, a way to say it. Um, it. It didn't fit. Yeah, once once you become one of the biggest bands, if not the biggest band in the world at the time. Then you can do you whatever can, you want. Exactly. <laughs> Like having a nearly nine minute song with, you know, an intro that's over a minute long. With a which, video that's like a movie. Right, exactly. So, so going back to some of the other songs, you know, a lot of those would make appearances on other albums. But I don't think there was, was there ever a studio version of Mamakin? I mean, well, I know that there's a live version on, on Lies, but I don't. I don't think that there's a studio version of that, is there? Actually, the stuff off Live Like a Suicide is not live. That was something that came out years later. The crowd is overdubbed. It's actually, they're actually, really? not, they're actually not live. Okay, interesting. All right. Um, production. Producer Spencer Proffer was hired to record a few of the songs to just kind of test the chemistry with the band. They eventually would record nine songs with him during that session. Um, they also recorded some demos with Nazareth guitarist Manny Charlton. Um, those were actually released earlier this year, uh, and you can find those on Spotify. Any idea who the band wanted to produce and who they flirted with as a producer? I've heard, a, I know uh, Nikki Six was one choice. Um, Mutt Lang's name came up. Paul Stanley did some uh, initial work, but apparently they weren't happy that he, he actually wanted to change the drums, but I heard he really got under Axel skin when he tried to change some of the songs. Um, okay. So it wasn't just the Adler thing. Cause that's what I had read that he wanted, I guess he wanted to change some of Adler's stuff and he made some, yeah, he made some suggestions on changing some of the songs. I know night train was one of them and that was it. He was out the door what what do you think this album would have sounded like had they got because they wanted mutt lang to be their producer and i guess the the label didn't want to spend the extra money on mutt what do you think that that album would have sounded like with with mutt at the helm so slick you couldn't get a grip on it yeah probably uh, all right, so just a, just a couple last things before we jump into some of the songs. I read an article from Revolver. It talked about um, 10 ways that GNR changed music. I thought that the second paragraph in the, in the article was great. That, that hair metal look became considerably less cool. They said they helped to usher out the dude looks like a lady aesthetic that had dominated the mid to late 80s. Um, it said, sure, Axel rocked a teased and sprayed do, and maybe even a little bit of lipstick and eyeliner in the Welcome to the Jungle 
video, but the rest of the band looked like they'd spent the night before the shoot sleeping on the floor of their local dive bar. Though it would take a few more years for Maybelline to be fully banished from the scene, GNR's popularity caused all but the most dedicated purveyors of hair metal to seriously reconsider their pretty boy ways. By the fall of 1988, even Poison had traded in their makeup kits for bandanas and three-day stubble. That article also talked about that they felt as though GNR had paved the way for Nirvana and the whole grunge movement. Any any thoughts on on that? Is that is that valid? Uh, to yeah, to I think to a degree. I know Nirvana. We all associate the death of hair metal with with that uh, smells like Teen Spirit video, but. I, I have read things too where they say other bands. Um, I've heard Motley Crue mention as their next album, which went number one, was a lot of people feel their best album, Doctor Feelgood. But they uh, bands realize that you know what we got to. This is this this is the new. This is it. This is what people want to hear. And I do think that it 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 broke that down. And people's like, wow, we can listen to rock and roll, and it doesn't have to have some guy with his hair sprayed, you know, and he's jumping off of the the drum riser i mean these guys you know we don't have to you know lyrics don't have to include you know every you know we're not just getting drunk and chasing girls these guys there's we have real problems these guys have real problems did did axel ever wear spandex uh did he ever go did he ever go the route of bon jovi or david lee roth with the spandex or the leather pants i've he's yeah leather pants yeah in fact the leather pants i've seen him wear a kilt um I've seen him just out there in spandex shorts. So, uh, yes, that's, that's how I remember Axel's with the shorts. And, and it's interesting while you're talking and we're getting ready to introduce the first song, I'm hearing sirens in the background. I mean, are you in the jungle? Are you in the jungle, baby? You know where you are. Welcome to the Jungle was released as the album's second single that was initially in the UK in September of 87. It was then relaunched in the US and also in the UK in October of 88, where it would reach number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. On the 87 release, the maxi single also included a live version of ACDC's Whole Lot of Rosie. The band's debut single, It's So Easy, which we'll talk about next, um, that had um, that was also on that maxi single. And then Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door was also on that maxi single, which I do remember them performing that live. That was in their, their early set um, in 87, which, of course, Knocking on Heaven's Door would make an appearance on. OK, now now I'm forgetting which use your illusion was that on one 
Or was that on two? It was on two. Actually, prior to that, it was on the Days of Thunder soundtrack also. Oh, I did not remember that. Okay. Uh, in 2009, VH1 would call Welcome to the Jungle the greatest hard rock song of all time. So do we do we agree with VH1? Is this the greatest hard rock song of all time? I, I yeah, that's hard to argue with. Okay. So for for my scoring, this is my second favorite song off of the album. So I'm giving this an 11. So even though it may not be the greatest hard rock song for me on this album, still a great song. I'm giving this an 11. What is your score? Well, and I will say this. I love this album and I don't I love every song on it. So it was it wasn't this is my favorite. Well, you know, my favorite is how I did this. So um, this got an eight. Okay. I'm curious now to see what some of your more uh, more like songs are. Interesting. All right. Second song is a song called It's So Easy. This song was actually released as the band's first single in June of 87. This is an account, according to an interview published in Hit Parader, it's an account of a time that Duff McKagan and West uh, Arkeen, who is the co-writer, who gets credit as the co-writer on this on this uh, song, were just kind of going through some stuff. They didn't have money. They had a lot of hanger-ons and girls that they could basically live off of, and things were just too easy, as as Duff would say. However, there's an emptiness, and it's just so easy. Um, Axel said that Duff and West originally wrote the song as an acoustic hippie yaya song, and it was Slash's decision to actually turn it into more of a rock song. And... West, who again is credited as as one of the songwriters, he lived in the apartment next to Duff. He really wanted to be in the band. Uh, the rumors were that Axel didn't want him in the band because he was too short and too fat. <laughs> and he would actually he would actually co-write some other GNR songs, The Garden and Yesterdays, um, are also co-written by West. What's interesting, so West passed away about 10 years ago. None of these songs are available on Spotify. It's so if you're if you're looking to hear It's So Easy on Spotify, um, you're not going to find it there. That typically means that because of the songwriting credits and royalties, my guess is West Estate probably never reached a suitable split of the royalties. I could be wrong on this, but yeah, it's it's not on there. You can you can definitely find some non-official posts on youtube for this song 
but uh, it's it's not on Spotify. L- let's talk about this as the as the lead single. Like Welcome to the Jungle is such a in your face type of song. It's a great song to start an album with. Why would you why would you put this song out as your first single as opposed to, you know, the three really big iconic songs that are on this album? And either it was the band choice um, or an, or a record company guy that got fired. I because I, I don't I don't agree. I, I I it's a song I like, but I can't. It doesn't. It's not a single. I can't. I can't. No, I agree. I agree with and and it's it's a wonder that this didn't completely just sink them. You know, the fact that it took them a year to gain the momentum to actually become popular. Yeah, it's just an interesting, interesting choice. I like the song. Um, I, I'm giving this a seven. So it's definitely one of my more favorite songs. But yeah, I'm with you. I don't I don't hear it as a single. So what's uh, what's your score on this? Um, and like I say, I love this song. It is a great song. I gave it a four. Um, it's not. Wow. It's not one of my it's not in the my favorite songs of this. But like I say, I just temper that with the fact that I love the songs. Uh, I mean on this album more than, than I like to say any other album. So it's, it's, there's a lot of, this is all about heart on this and definitely not the, the single. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. Let's go to the third song on the album. This is a song called night train. So we're going to talk about each of the singles that were released on the album. Technically, this was the fifth single that was released. It was released as a single in July 1989, two years after their first single was released. And this is known as the single that was released after Patience, which was which was a song off of their EP called GNR Lies. Song was not included in their best of album only reached 93 on the US Billboard charts. I I I feel like this is a pretty decent decent song, but I kind of feel like after a song like Patience, people were probably getting tired of GNR and probably needed a little bit of a break. Um, or this is such an about face to Patience that I think people may just not have embraced this song. Um, the song is a tribute to an infamous brand of cheap California wine called Night Train Express, which was extremely popular with the band during their early days because of its low price and high alcohol content. And I don't know what it is about you and your album picks about songs that celebrate liquors. I mean, we already talked ad, ad nauseum about Brass Monkey. <laughs> and so now we're talking about Night Train. Well, Brass Monkey is the 
the uh, white trash mimosa in the, in the morning, you drink that. And then at, at evening after dinner, you drink some, uh, some, ni- some vintage of Night Train Express. Uh, this song, I don't, I think it wasn't as popular. Vintage? <laughs> vintage. A, a vintage. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing this as being drunk out of a, out of a uh, paper bag, but. Oh yeah. The, I, I don't, the, it has, you have to cover it with a paper bag. That's sure. The other bums will fight you for it. <laughs> I think, I think it wasn't as popular much more so because this album had been released and now was popular and we'd all heard it. Um, and it's not. I think it's one of the weaker songs on the album. It's once again, it's also great. And uh, I, I liked it much more when I originally heard it than as time's gone by, but I still, I, it's just, I think it was, I think people were looking to hear new stuff from him. I think that's one of the, yeah. I know they released GNR lies. They actually, the second side of GNR lies is their EP live, like a suicide. They found out that people were selling copies of that for five and $600 and they, oh, and so Axl Rose said, we're going to put an end to that. And so they backed GNR Lies with the full uh, Five Like a Suicide. Okay. What was, uh, what's your score on this one? A three. Okay. So I'm giving this a four. I think we're pretty consistent in our scores. Uh, to, to your point, I do like this song, but there's just so many other songs that are that are better than than night train um which is why i'm giving it a four again to to the point where we you know talk about great albums there are songs that are just going to get lower scores next song is out to get me and it's to get me not out to get me What do you have to share about this song? This song, this is my favorite song. Uh, it's my favorite Guns N' Roses song. It's my favorite song on this album. It's uh, a song that I personally relate to very much. The, the times when I when I heard this song, it was felt like the whole world was out to get me, and it was just a rallying cry. This is like I, well, I my personality changed a lot at this time where I wasn't going to take it anymore, and I was much. Uh, mouthier bolder and i was like say the whole world was out to get me and i felt it in this song this was just like an ant i would just sing this loudly when it came on if you could see my big grin on my face when i was listening to this album this week preparing for this the the, my initial thought was this is this is going to be wayne's top song i just knew that this was going to be your top song. Um, I, it doesn't do much for me. Um, I, I'm giving this actually a three. And the only reason why it's probably not my least favorite song on the album is just the last part where he says, and take that one to heart. That that probably saves it from being the worst song on the album for me. But I just, I knew that this was going to be yours. I just, you, you get, I don't know why. You get me. I, I get you. I just, I was like, this is this is going to be Wayne's top song. So, all right, that's funny. Next song is Mr. Brownstone. Mr. 
So it's said on this song that Slash and Izzy wrote this tune while they were sitting around Stradlin's apartment. They were talking about heroin addicts. If you couldn't figure out that Mr. Brownstone is actually a slang term for heroin, then you're not very sure. Good on good good on you for not knowing anything about heroin. In uh, April of 2012, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, this was one of three songs that they performed at the uh, ceremonies. Slash has included Mr. Brownstone frequently in his set list for, you know, his GNR post GNR career and uh, Velvet Revolver um, also included um, this in their set list, which, of course, Velvet Revol- Revolver is uh, Slash uh, Duff also included Scott Whalen on vocals, which, you know, Scott knew a little something about Mr. Brownstone. Unfortunately so. Unfortunately so. You know, rest rest in peace. I, I had an opportunity to, to see Scott Wayland just a couple of weeks before he passed away. And what a what a tragedy, because he was he was definitely a um, one of the greatest singers of our generation. You're going to be really surprised at this. I already kind of I kind of teased you on a on a previous episode that you were going to be shocked at my my top song. This is my top song. I love the song. Um, there's just something about the the attitude of this song, even though it's a song about heroin. It's uh, it's it's catchy as heck. So I'm giving this a twelve. What uh, what's your score for Mr. Brownstone? Mr. Brownstone gets a 10. I also, this, uh, one of my favorite songs on the album. This is a song I've heard. I think I've seen them four times live and they, they always play this song. Um, they even have a little different version, little couple of lyrics added, that were taken out for the radio edit. Um, but I love this which, song. Which one of those times I'm still really pissed off. What's his name for Metallica for burning himself? <laughs> prior to coming to Seattle. Actually, he was the first show he uh, played guitar at after being burned in Montreal was uh, the kingdom. Oh, was it? The, the Yeah, it was quite a spectacle. Like I say, they, they opened up, they were the second, uh, the opening opening act was Motorhead. Right. Uh, Slash came out and played with Motorhead on a couple of songs. Then Metallica came on and all of a sudden it goes completely black you can't see anything. And all of a sudden the intro to uh, seek and destroy starts playing. And then all of a sudden two, two uh, spotlights hit James Hetfield. He's actually got his guitar um, and playing for the first time since, uh, since the accident place just exploded. Yeah. So, so, so background information on, on that. So you and I had bought tickets for that while I was home for the summer from college think that the show was supposed to be like end of July or something. And then James burnt himself. Um, they rescheduled it for like, what was it like November or something like that? Uh, I was just going to say, I believe it was November. Yeah. And, and of course I was, uh, you know, 13 hours away. You're, you're welcome for the extra ticket. I, <laughs> I hope you brought somebody nice to, to the show with you. I traded it for a bag of weed. I actually believe that. <laughs> All right. Uh, here is uh, the, I think this is the last song off of side A. Is the, isn't that correct? Yes. 
Or were or were you were you in the oh, actually they're not side A and side B, it's side G and side R. Oh, okay. Here we go. So Paradise City. Paradise City was released as the fourth single in November 88. It's also the uh, only song on the album that features a synthesizer. You can pretty much uh, hear this still, still gets a lot of spins on classic rock stations. Song peaked at number five on the Billboard Hot 100. This uh, was the band's third single to reach the top 10. I mean, what what can you say about Paradise City? I mean, everybody knows this song. Even my kids, even my kids know Paradise City. I I think it's one of the greatest songs in rock and roll. I always argue with my son-in-law. He thinks some ridiculous no effect song is the is the greatest song. And I always just say, every time I see him, I say Paradise City. And I actually doing some research. What what song could he even argue is better than Paradise City from No FX? Uh, it's clearly personal to him. I don't even know. Okay. This okay. is okay. This is the best. I think this is their best song. Um, like I say, it may not be my favorite song, but it is their best song. I think it's one of the best songs ever written. I did actually doing some research for this find out that Slash had alternate lyrics for uh, Paradise City, where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. He had where the girls are fat and they have big titties which i guess the the rest of the band mixed uh which i think probably helped it get on radio but i, I this is my second favorite song okay this gets an eight for me and this was one that i i went back and forth with my number nine and number 10 song it's a great song it's definitely an iconic song if we're going to talk about you know iconic songs uh for for bands you know, this is definitely one that everybody knows. I'm, I'm sure everybody in the in the crowd when you when you've seen them live since then, since this was released, everybody knows all the lyrics to this, right? Everybody sings along. Yeah. All right. Next song is My Michelle. song is about a friend of the band a girl named michelle she's thanked in the appetite for destruction cover sleeve i guess slash knew her and um according to axel he and young were in a car together when the song your song by elton john came on the radio and young mentioned that she always wanted somebody to write a song about her so rose took that to heart um this is not one of those romantic songs 
I would say <laughs> if you're going to dedicate a song um, and write a song about somebody, you probably want it to be a little more flattering, not a real flattering song. Um, I guess she liked the song. She liked all the attention that was um, that was heaped on her because of it. But, you know, just the fact that it's talking about her drug addiction, um, father's work in the porn industry, I guess, according to um, to some of the stuff that I read online that, um, you know, she she kind of went through some some stuff uh, because of uh, of the attention. Um, But uh, apparently she has cleaned herself up and has moved on from that um you know i was reading some of the stuff and it kind of reminded me of uh jane's addictions jane says you know another song written about uh, somebody who um not a real flattering song but uh you know they would they would have a a, a happy ending so to speak of uh about that what what uh what score are you giving my michelle my michelle is my least favorite song on this album I and I it, it's it's always been that way. There's and I can't really put my finger on what I what I don't what I'm not fond of. I guess I can't say don't like, but I just there's something about it that I don't. Uh, maybe I knew a Michelle. I don't know. Um, I'm not a huge. It's just my it's my least favorite song. Yeah, it's uh, this is number two for me. This gets a two. So I believe it or not, we're kind of in. Uh, kind of in agreement on some of these these lower lower rank songs all right next song up is think about you I couldn't really find a whole lot of bio information on think about you. Um, I like this song. All I know is that this is, this is considered an Izzy song. Any bio information on this song? The only one, I have two things that I'd heard about it. Um, one, I heard that the, the A&R guy liked it and thought it, he loved the song and thought it should be a single, but couldn't get anybody else to agree. And being an Izzy song makes sense for the other thing I heard, which is that it's actually the lyrics. If you listen to them, it's actually about heroin. Okay. Interesting. Maybe I need to revisit my score on this one then. Uh, no, I don't know. Um, so this, I'm giving this a nine. I, I like this. I, to, to your point about it being a single, I could totally hear this as a single. Maybe not a very high charting single, but I I could I could see that. What uh, what score are you giving this? Uh, we're going back to back. I got a nine. This is uh, right up there. I I also agree. I I've always liked this song. I I think it's it's one of the better songs on the album, and and I don't think it gets the attention. It just goes to show their their filler songs are better than most people's singles at this from this time. Because this is more of an Izzy song. Does does this get played live at all? I've never heard this live. Is he is he is he with the band or is he still kind of uh, on the on the fritz? 
I heard when they got back together and did that last big stadium tour that it was, yeah, that he was, that he was back. Okay. You did not see them on this latest tour then? I, I was, I was asked, um, and I, I, when I, the tickets were $200, it was in CenturyLink, which is a football stadium. Yeah. And my only comment was, I saw Guns N' Roses when they were relevant. And here is the quote unquote ballad. Here is Sweet Child O' Mine. How long is this intro? <laughs> uh, it's but it's, it's I know, so but, iconic. But and, how and, many and other hit singles can you think of that have this long of an intro? Uh, usually it's not a good plan. You want to get that singer's voice out there right away. But uh, did, I don't know. It just does, does it that. Works. I think that speaks to how great of a song this is, is that despite the intro being over a minute long that this could become the iconic song that it is. So this was released in August of 88. This was the album's third single. The song topped the Billboard Hot 100 chart. This was the band's only number one U.S. single, which I thought was interesting because I could have swore that November Rain was a number one song, but it wasn't. Um Billboard ranked this as the number five song of all of 1988. Guitarist Slash would say of this song in 1990, he says the song turned into a huge hit and now it makes me sick. I mean, I like it, but I hate what it represents. And this single, after the single, of course, the band poached from their EP to release Patience. So just, I mean, Think about back-to-back singles of Sweet Child of Mine with Patience. I mean, that that's that's strong. Uh, the group had written one last w- one last song for the album. This was actually the last song that they put on this album. Uh, and this was this was where Slash was actually fooling around with that signature riff. He was using it as a guitar exercise, essentially. And then Stradlin started playing the chords along with it. And unbeknownst to the guitarist, Rose was listening and was writing lyrics to that. And uh, Slash had said, if Axel hadn't been there writing those lyrics, chances are that song would have never existed. And I wonder if the success of this song kind of surprised the band because they didn't, they didn't play this song when I saw them in 87. So I don't I don't know if they were just trying to invoke an emotion of we're a rock band and you know Sweet Child of Mine is more of a melodic. I mean, I, I say the the facetiously that it's quote unquote a ballad because I don't view this as a ballad. It's just a a melodic rock song. Yeah, it's got a slower pace, but I agree it's a love song. Um, I hear that I've what I've read that not none of the band is very fond of it. It's not a song that they thought was particularly strong or, or even wanted to put on the record. Well, surprises on them. So 
I mean, yeah. this is this is one of their iconic songs. Uh, I I like this song. I'm giving this a ten. This is my third favorite song on the album. Um, I'm gonna guess you're gonna rate this low. Actually, a seven. It's this okay. is a good. This is this is a it's a very good song. Um, it's one that I. It's actually a lot of their songs are. Um, kind of written acoustically so this is a song i can play on the guitar not the intro but the rest of it right right okay next one is you're crazy And this song was originally done acoustically. You can find that version on GNR Lies. And I got to tell you that I like the acoustic version better. And I agree, I absolutely agree with you. I do too. I've heard this song played live. I've heard it I, uh, acoustically. I've listened, you know, I've listened to it countless times on the on the Appetite CD. And I agree. I like the I like the uh, the acoustic version better. Yeah. Um, I'm giving this a five. I kind of, I went back and forth with night train in this song as four and five. Uh, eventually I think because I do like the acoustic version, I kind of give this, this version a little bit more of a pass. So I'm giving this a five. Uh, what's your ranking on this? A two. Uh, this is my, Oh, wow. It's it's a song. I, I can say the, I know it's one of their oldest songs, um, but I, I got a re, I got a new appreciation for it when the when uh, GNR Lies came out, yeah. the acoustic version. But I never, I was never a huge fan of this song. If electric, if the acoustic version would have been included on, on Appetite, would that have changed your score on this? Probably not because it wouldn't fit. I don't think an acoustic song would have fit in this yeah. in this album anywhere. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, second to last song on the album is Anything Goes. songwriting credits go to both gnr and chris weber well that is that's a little known fact that's not something i'm a big guns and roses fan i didn't know that yeah chris weber like the michigan basketball player known for calling the extra time out right that that that's that's the that's the chris weber i thought you meant uh <laughs> it's it's not it's this the the chris weber that's mentioned on the the songwriting um Songwriting credits only has one B, so Chris, uh, Weber, yeah, Chris Weber, and a, and a and a timeout left to call, and a timeout, yes. <laughs> so uh, they credit Weber as co-writer on this song. Um, I guess he also co-wrote a few other songs: "Ain't Going Down," uh, "New Work Tune," "The Plague." Um, some of those are found on the Appetite for Destruction Deluxe Edition. 
Again, you can find that on Spotify. And Weber claimed to have co-written Shadow of Your Love, which is a B-side on um, a few releases. And also it claims to have written Back Off Bitch, which was on Use Your Illusion 1. He actually sued the band over songwriting credits. Uh, The case actually was settled. And so Weber did not receive songwriting credits for those particular um, songs. But uh, the liner notes that I saw, he does get he does get some some credits for for this song. I don't particularly care for this song very much. This uh, this this gets a, a, a six for me. Um, it kind of grew on me a little bit more as I listened because I kind of again, I kind of waffled on on some of my my lower scores and, and um, this one eventually got a six. Again, I, I could have easily swapped this out with night train and, and you're crazy, but I don't know. I, I, I guess it just kind of grew on me as the week went on. And I listened to this a couple more times. What's uh, what's your score on this? I know I give it a five. It's also, um, I, I do like the song, but I just, I guess I, I don't like it with, to the level of Paradise City and yeah. and and that, but um, it also grew on me over time. Like I say, uh, I think there was a time when this probably would have been my second to least favorite song, and it's as over the years um, listening to it, um, I've I've actually grown. I've appreciated a little more. Okay, all right, we're up to the last song on the album. This is Rocket Queen. Duff would say that Rocket Queen owes a particular debt to Cameo, believe it or not. So I guess they were listening to Word Up a lot when they were uh, writing this song. I tried to listen to it with that in mind, and um, it does have a groove to it, but i I don't see the I don't see the uh, resemblance to Word Up. But maybe I'm maybe I'm not just not seeing it yeah i read the same thing and i i i guess there is a, a kind of an a kind of funky groove to it but i don't i it's much i'm assuming it's more of a an inspired kind of a credit and i'm assuming that when he's referring to the rocket that i'm assuming this is a reference to his member i think it's a vague yeah i think it's a vague penis reference yeah or not not actually a not so i don't vague yeah penis. i was gonna say this is not so vague <laughs> Um, considering that we're talking about the backseat rhythm and blues, I mean, was he trying to write an ACDC song? Cause that seems like an ACDC type of type of reference, but lame, lame lyrics, regardless. One of the, th- one of my criticisms of ACDC is just some of the, the goofy, um, sexual innuendo type of, uh, type of lyrics that they throw out there. Especially the Brian Johnson era. I thought they were much more clever with Bon Scott. Yeah, agreed. You want to talk anything about the recording and um, 
some of those extra noises that you might hear in the uh, uh in the yes i always i had always heard that and thought that it was uh just kind of urban legend but uh recently read a couple of articles where it was verified where there's he they set up they axel rose brought uh steven adler's stripper girlfriend into the to the sound booth and uh got some 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 raw footage as, as it would be that is clearly heard in the uh, mix. I guess the rest of it was destroyed. There was like, apparently an over an hour of it, which I hope that was on different takes, but uh, <laughs> I believe her name was Ariana Smith. Um, and she was an exotic dancer. Uh, uh, Axel Rose was upset with Steven Adler over something and she liked him better. So he took it full advantage of that. I guess it had some, some much to some similar effects as uh as Michelle got from being made infamous by a Guns N' Roses song, but she's also cleaned up her life and okay since then. Okay, this is my least favorite song on the album. It does absolutely nothing for me, and just the 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 goofy recording of the orgasmic sex going on. Yeah, it doesn't do anything for me. So this 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 I'm giving a one. And, and just... I gave it a I gave it a six. To me, I I, I definitely see I, I, I feel similarly about the 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 first part of the song, but that last bit, the whole big change after, at the end, for me, uh, really saves it and and brought it from from lower depths. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's. Let's tally up our points. I don't think we're going to have too many surprises on this. What are you thinking our top song was? Paradise City. Paradise City is actually tied for our number two. Uh, that ah. is tied for number two with Welcome to the Jungle. Um, Mr. Brownstone? Mr. Brownstone. So I gave it a 12. You gave it a 10 for an average score of 11. So that is... That is by far our our top song off of this album. Rounding up our top five, Think About You. That got an average score of nine. We both gave it a nine. And then Sweet Child of Mine is um, is uh, is fourth. Did I do the math right? Well, we had two tied at yeah, two, we so had, that's, yeah. that's five songs. Yeah, that's that's good. All right. So there's, there's, our, there's our top five. Now that I've listened to this uh, like four, five times in the last week it will probably be another 20 years before i listen to this again (laughs) well i'm sure it won't be as long for me but uh yeah unless unless you unless you pull me into another one of these debates like which one is better use your illusion one or use your illusion two i think that this might it might be a couple years before i seek out listening to guns and roses so i'm good Actually, I may seek out patience. There's just something about the whistling part that uh, that gets me every time. So, yeah, I can't help but whistle along. I don't think I, I, I'm sure I don't whistle quite as uh, in tune as Mr. Rose, but I, I give it my best efforts. Yeah, maybe we should end the uh, the the episode with us whistling out. Ooh, I like it. I don't know. That might be asking too much for us to be on key and <laughs> it might be, might be asking too much for people to come back and, after and that. Be in unison and 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 I just finished listening to the edit of of uh, 
you know, when we did the ending for, for rain King for that counting crows episode. And you, and, uh, yeah. I, and you, this, this whole thing is wrought with peril. You, I don't think we, yeah. I, I'm backing out. Yeah. You, you sounded awful and which I left, <laughs> which, which I left in for the final, final edit. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. It's been a pleasure revisiting with you. Um, so what are we going to revisit for our next episode? Uh, possibly Elvis Costello's debut, My Aim is True. So thanks for listening. Please go support the arts. Go to a live show. Buy a t-shirt of the band. Buy a record. Visit a record store and not just on Record Store Day. We are Records Revisited and we are out. We are out. Oh, that's that's bad. <laughs> oh, that's that is worse than I Woo! thought it was going to be, and I thought it was going to be. Oh, bad. that's that's bad. <laughs>